The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ben. Welcome back to another episode of the Cinematography Podcast. Very happy to be here. How about yourself? How are you doing? Super happy to be here. I mean, the sun is out. The birds are chirping. It's a beautiful day. Lies. We're doing this at night. You're right. It's like all lies. <laughs> anyway, so, so Ben, how are you doing? How's things? Uh, doing good. Adopted a shelter dog. Uh, yeah, nice. Yeah. Fancy. G- got a new gig that I'm not allowed to talk about. So uh, you Even know. better. And the old gig that I'm not allowed to talk about, I will hopefully be allowed to talk about very, very soon. But as soon as I can talk about it, you're not going to get me to shut up about it. So uh, enjoy this respite from me yakking about my uh, my project. All right. I will enjoy it. Who do we have on the show today? Just out now is a new movie called Girl Picture. And we've got the creative team, the director, Ali Hopsolo, and the cinematographer, Yarmo Kiru. And uh, mm. yes, they're Finnish. And uh, that is the best pronunciation I can do. Well, I mean, your Finnish is uh, infinitely better than mine, so uh, congratulations for that. (laughs) Hey, uh, what do we want to talk about today for our close focus? Uh, Let's talk about Wolfgang Peterson. So, uh, you know, a director of uh, Das Boot and Outbreak and Air Force One. Enemy Mine. Enemy Mine, exactly. Uh, Passed away uh, at the age of 81. Director uh, has made some incredible movies. I just saw the headline. You tell me, Ben, what was your feel about this? Well, you know, the the most interesting thing was when I looked him up on IMDb, you know, because Wolfgang Peterson to me is synonymous with a kind of blockbuster American film, even though it could be argued that his best film is probably Das Boot. Um, it's just such a great movie. It's incredible. But, you know, he's known for things like The Perfect Storm and Troy and Air Force One. And when I looked him up on IMDb, I was actually kind of shocked that he didn't make more movies than he did. Like I'm, when your I'm, movies I'm are sure that good, it, you don't need to make that yeah. many of them. That's, <laughs> really well, that's people, true. Yeah. Well, and also like you know, making a movie like uh, The Perfect Storm probably takes it out of you. But oh, it's I'm like, sure. but it's like he does Das Boot in 1985. That same year, he does Enemy Mine, which is a very uh, underrated, underseen sci-fi movie with uh, Dennis Quaid and Louis Gossett Jr. That uh, definitely people should check out if they haven't seen it. I saw it in the theater. Me too. Me too. Because I'm I'm an old. Yeah, and me then, too. <laughs> and then he, he did a movie called Shattered, uh, mm. in the in the line of fire, which oh, is of course. amazing. Outbreak yeah. with Dustin yeah. Hoffman, Air Force One with uh, with Harrison Ford. But you know, there's a gap between each one of these. So except for 1985, you've got two movies in 1985. Then six years goes by before Shattered. Then two years and then another two years and then another two years and then three years and then four years and his last american uh directing credit is poseidon from 2006 he made a movie uh, that's a german language film in 2016 that was his last directing credit according to imdb i mean he could have been directing commercials this whole time that just aren't listed there uh but i i think that you know he was one of those directors who was his name actually carried weight his name would be mentioned out loud during the preview like people wanted to see a movie that he directed and his movies were known for just amazing visual style well-crafted scripts and often huge stars 
And there's a real skill to being the guy who works with Dustin Hoffman and Harrison Ford and, you know, George Clooney and Brad Pitt on and on and on. And the complexity and construction of some of these movies, you know, even something like Troy, which is not like a complex concept necessarily, but like the the way the fight scenes are done and the and the historical accuracy that he went for just really uh, a kind of director that I don't know that we have a lot of directors like Wolfgang Peterson these days. Uh, I, I would agree with that. And I, I, I think like most people, I can't really think of him without thinking of Das Boot. Das Boot is just mm. such a white knuckle, harrowing, incredible experience to be inside that submarine. It's a visceral experience. It's sort of haunting. It's one of those movies that I really, really enjoyed, but I don't necessarily want to keep watching it because it's like, you know, uh, I want to have that impact. But a couple times it's been on TV and I've just been immediately sucked in. Well, and it's the kind of thing, too, where when people talk about adapting a stage play to film, not I don't know. I don't think Das Boot was a stage play, but it's a movie that takes place almost entirely inside a submarine, which is just teeny tiny. And I think it is a in itself a class in how to tell a story that unfolds almost entirely within the same confined space. I haven't seen it in a while, so I don't remember if there are scenes outside the submarine, but I don't think there are. I mean, I feel like it's the definitive movie. I mean, whenever you see submarine a movie, movie for sure, yeah, yeah. Whenever you see a movie like Crimson Tide or Red October, Hunt for, yeah, Hunt for Red October or uh, Below, an underseen uh, horror movie that takes place mostly on a submarine, K nineteen like, Widowmaker. Yeah, when you see those, like they're all going to be compared unfavorably, maybe unfairly unfavorably. But Das Boot just like set that standard. They're like the bar. The bar is so high. Y- yes, you exactly. you know that if anyone makes a movie that even takes place partially on a submarine, that everyone making it has watched Das Boot and is either trying to steal moves from Das Boot or is trying to not be Das Boot somehow. But I mean, like I I feel like I've seen all of his. Uh, oh, the never ending story. Holy oh, crap. Wow. I forgot. I Really? I didn't know. I realized that was him. The NeverEnding Story is just a an amazing fantasy story for I was exactly the right age to see that movie when it came out. Like He really was a, a master of style. Do yourself a favor if you haven't seen uh, some of Wolfgang Peterson's movies. Check out Das Boot. Check out Enemy Mine. You know, you, you won't be disappointed. These are these are movies that really hold up. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ben, uh, I think we should get to the interview. But uh, before we do, I just want to mention that Girl Picture, the movie that uh, we're going to be spending most of our time talking about in these interviews, is out in theaters now. And I just did a quick check on Rotten Tomatoes. It's hitting 98% on their tomato meter. So sounds like it's uh, I believe that's pronounced tomatometer. Oh, tomatometer. Of course. Sorry. I'm, uh, you know, it's, it's like tomato. Yeah. <laughs> you're, yeah. You're, you're yanking my chain here. So I, I figured I'd, I'd just go with that. Okay. So <laughs> hey, here's the interview with Ali Hapsolo and Yarmo Kiru. The Cinematography Podcast Interview. I'm joined now by Ali Hapasolo, and she is the director of a new movie called Girl Picture. That's the American title. Ali, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. You've crafted a beautiful and interesting story, and I, I want to dive into it. But first, before I, I give any synopsis of it, please tell our listeners what your movie is about. Well, I usually say that first and foremost, it's about the need to be seen. And what does that mean in this story? It's a story of three girls on three consecutive Fridays. They are 17 or 18. So they're kind of at an age, which I actually call a liminal age, 
you're right at the cusp of womanhood. So you're kind of fluctuating between childhood and adulthood. And very abruptly so, you can be one in one instant and then the other in the next instant. And you're kind of trying to draw your own contours and really figure out your own picture. And in order for you to do that, you kind of really need the other people around you. You know, you're in communication with them to see yourself. And so you really want to be seen by them. That doesn't mean that you, you should see what, how other people see you, but their gaze helps you see yourself and then sort of like tap into what your image is and sort of explore yourself. So it's really about identity and the growing pains and beauties of teenage girls. All right. So I want to jump just very quickly into the title because the title in Finnish, if I'm not mistaken, is Girls, Girls, Girls. That's the literal like, you know, English translation. Was there a reason that you shied away from that title for the American market? Yes. Shall I say? <laughs> yes, please. This is, uh, this, is, this, is, this is what I want to talk about. <laughs> well, it evoked an image of a certain type of bar in my head. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> All I could see was the neon sign with girls, girls, girls. So that's why I shied away from that. And that would definitely have been the wrong kind of girl picture for this film. Yes, I understand. Many years ago, many years ago, I worked on a Motley Crue music video for a song called Girls, Girls, Girls. So, but uh, it was slightly different connotations. But but anyway, please continue. Please, yeah, please. Uh, I love you know. that you've worked on that music video. That's like too much right now because we definitely watched that in pre-production just like saying to ourselves, we, this, this can't be the title in English, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think though it, it might Great video. Oh, no, I don't know about that. But, uh, but uh, I think it might have been actually really fun, though, if you really were trying to take that back, if you're trying to, you know, change then the, the perception of what that is. And I think what's really interesting in this country in particular, there is uh, these really serious divides, particularly with media, even dramatic media about young women and sexuality. And it's difficult to find something out there that treats sexuality in a very sort of matter of fact and I want to say, like, you, you talk about the maturity level and the cusp of womanhood, but all of the characters, when dealing with sex, at least the sexuality part of it, they're quite mature. They don't seem to have the same sort of typical tropes you might find in American movies where, oh, I'm not sure if sex is even for me or I have, am I ready? All of your characters really have decided, no, no, I, I'm a sexual person and I'm figuring out exactly what I want in life. And I'm really curious about the thought process and if maybe it is just a more European idea that teenagers in particular have more sexual maturity. But but how do you how tell, tell me about the title? Tell me about what how you wanted your characters to to interact with the world. Well, first of all, that was a really interesting way to to describe that they have this mature that they have already concluded that they are sexual beings and that they don't have pains with that. Of course, one of the characters has pains with the question of not feeling pleasure, but she's never questioned whether she would want to feel pleasure. So yeah, I like your definition there. Um, where do I even start? First of all, the title, just to say, I, I also love your idea of reclaiming, like kind of taking girls, girls, girls back, because actually that's what we did with the Finnish title. You know, the Finnish title, which is dudat, 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 and means exactly the same as girls, 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 is it has a double meaning because it's kind of like this, ah, girls, 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 you know, kind of like, you know, just wagging your finger. finger at, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> and it's, it's this very belittling thing that people might say to young girls. But then at the same time, it was, for me, it was more like girls, girls, girls with my like fist going 
<laughs> instead yeah. of the finger, you know, kind of I'm taking this back. And with this project, I've kind of reclaimed the word girls because I was told in the beginning of the production that, no, you shouldn't say girls, you should say young women. And I said that I actually refuse to because I absolutely refuse to go with the thoughts that there's something bad about girl. Like, I just absolutely refuse that. So that's why I'm always deliberately using the word girl. In Finland, I think that people have hopefully an unproblematic relationship with sexuality. And when I say people, I mean young people or young women, because that's who the characters are in this film. But I don't think that films reflect that kind of world. The on-screen representation of young girls' sexuality is more often seen through danger, seen through violence, seen through victimization, seen through some sort of punishment, be it unwanted pregnancy or dangerous situations or shame that's so big that it it causes, you know, like there's movies where women are burned alive <laughs> because they had sex, like this medieval stories about a woman with desire. And uh, by the way, let me point out that I'm absolutely not against these stories. I'm not saying that women's sexuality should always be dealt with beauty and grace. And it's just like this wonderful thing that you can't make rough stories of. But I feel like the world has a lot of room for a different kind of lens. We are so accustomed to the films where women and sexuality is women being objects. But even when women are subjects, they quite often are seen through a pretty rough lens. You know, we have more stories of women who are nymphos than women who are, you know, just like wanting to have pleasure and enjoying their sex life. So it was very important for us to create a world where sexuality belongs to all of them. And it's a very normal part of life and that they should be allowed to explore it safely and freely and not be defined by boys or adults. They do it on their own terms. And so I just wanted there to be like more colors and more shades. And it was, it was sort of like a big mission for us, especially this like not dangerous type of world where they, yeah, they're not shamed, they're not belittled, they're not even warned. So that was a big mission. <laughs> well, well, it is actually very refreshing because when I started thinking back, trying to think in my mind of, of other films that portray burgeoning adult sexuality like this, I, I couldn't come up with one. I couldn't find one in, in my brain that seemed to treat sex so matter-of-factly. And I, I got to say that's it's refreshing. And I will say it's less dramatic in some regards. There's plenty of drama in your movie. Your movie is not not dramatic, but it turns out that the sexual component, which is so often dramatized for, you know, maximum heightened dramatic effect or turned into light comedy, uh, it treats it in a very, I want to say, normal and natural way, which is not something that you're used to seeing on screen. At least I certainly couldn't think of something else that really treated sexuality like this. And I, I'm, I'm glad to hear that, that this was a conscious thought. But uh, I, I'm wondering if during the actual production part of this, did you feel like it was difficult to avoid it? Or was it quite easy to keep it right where you wanted it to, at least the correct emotional tension or emotional beats? Well, it was something that we were constantly really aware of and talking about, you know, like sort of every aspect, um, just in every aesthetic choice always led us to have a conversation about the representation, be it sex or girlhood or young people. Like there was constantly a conversation going on about everything. And 
like you pointed out there between the lines, it's not a very uh, big story in terms of plot or action. It's much more kind of like a life study or character study. And therefore, you can't really hide behind story or plot or action. So you have to really get it right. You know, everything has to be very specific, very believable, and very character-driven for it to work. And in addition to that, it's kind of awkward sometimes, which is also something we don't see in film a lot. You know, like if I was 16, I might think that sex is either really frightening or really perfect for people based on movies only, you know? That's but right. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, it's obviously so many other things. And there's a lot of, there's a big element of awkwardness. And I remember there's this scene where um, Röntgen's second um, trial to find pleasure, um, she's in bed with a guy who is trying to give her pleasure. <laughs> and we are doing uh, ADR for this in post-production. And the ADR recordist like, has to stop the scene in the middle and turns to look at me and says, I have not seen this. You know, <laughs> like teenagers, like yeah. awkward like this in bed. And that's a long scene, by the way. Like it, yeah. it's, kind of, it's, it's something like five minutes or something. But it doesn't, it doesn't get like too bad but of course it has to like kind of go there because if we want to be truthful you know not mm. things are not so easy all the time and one thing that actually was also really important for us in the making of that was the question of consent i don't know if you notice it because we don't make a big fuss about it but in every single scene people ask if they're allowed to touch the other person and they do it with such ease that you could easily sort of you know claim that you know it doesn't have to be more difficult than that no, I, I definitely noticed that. And it's, and it's, uh, they're almost like throwaway lines. It's like, it, it's so, it's so casual. It's so easy. And of course, I think <laughs> for, for many people, there's a lot of tension around that, but, but for your characters, it, it you know, it's it, not a second thought. So anyway, I want to shift gears a little bit because we, we've talked now quite a bit about the overall themes of your movie, but this is the cinematography podcast and we, we talk a bit about craft and I, I wonder if you could talk about maybe the uh, collaboration with your cinematographer about uh, coming up with the look for this movie and how you decided, you know, to, to go in the direction that you did. Sure. That's one of my favorite, if not the favorite topic. <laughs> um, the cinematographer is called Jarmo Giuru. This was the third production we did together. He is amazing. He's a very story-driven and character-driven cinematographer. He's a good person. So it's always been a pleasure to work with him. But on this one, it was so nice to tap into how, how we sort of get this very real film made with these girls. That was kind of a big goal for us. I was really, I've been sort of afraid of aestheticizing for the past few years because my first feature, I feel like it, it, it's a different genre. It was kind of like this more aestheticized period piece. But I have ever since kind of really wanted to not have anything feel constructed. So I was really, really keen on going for like a very almost documentary feel. And that worked really well with Jarmo's aesthetic because he has developed a really good narrative method that pulls from documentary in his previous features that he has done. This is his third feature that he's done and he shot a lot of documentary also. So we kind of started from really figuring out what it means to be a teenager aesthetically. Like how do we get the teenage life to lead our choices of cinematography, our aesthetic? Because obviously if you're drawing from the topic and the characters, then you could get real, so to speak, because that's what we really wanted to do. By the way, I was constantly saying, 
nothing can look like a movie or like if a shot looked like film, you know, great film shot or something. I said, no, 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 no. Way too film-like, you know, it has to be much more like real life. It's too gorgeous or something. So we talk a lot. We really like prep um, and breaking down the script, every scene together and with our production designer, Laura Hapakangas, who is another genius. They are both just magnificent. We kind of started from keywords, which then defined our thoughts and sort of more abstract approaches, such as for example, I wanted abrupt changes of tempo because teenagers have very abrupt changes of mood. Um, I wanted people to be in movement constantly and the camera also. It's a fully handheld the whole film because I feel like they never stop, except when they do stop, then it feels kind of like an effect. One of our mottos was that movement is norm. And when we're still, it's a special effect because then, then when you stop at those intimate moments, you really concentrate at those moments, but otherwise everybody's moving. And then, yeah, Jarmo <laughs> suggested, it was really funny. I remember forever he had been preparing this question and he didn't know how to pop it. And then one day he just sent me this message, like, how about we shoot it four by three? And my first thought was, Jarmo is insane. And then my immediate second thought was, Jarmo is insane. This is, <laughs> yeah. We have to go for this. This is amazing, which we did. And I didn't even have to read his, like, he had prepared like nine pages of reasons why to do it. Um, oh, but oh, I was can, can you give with... me just one, give me, like one or two <laughs> of these reasons? Because I wasn't going to bring up four by three. I'm glad you, you brought it up. I really was curious as to why you chose it. And you said he came up with this document. Just give me like the number one big reason, because I'm curious why the throwback format. I'll give you the number one reason, although I think it's actually because he loves Andrea Arnold, who uses it a lot. So I think that's the secret real reason. <laughs> but, <laughs> but no, it's because it treats the character in a way that feels very intimate. And coming back to the idea of us wanting to really be in the girl's point of view, you know, we're not telling this from the adult point of view. We're, we're letting the character lead the camera. We want to be real. We want it to feel like the girl's story. We're not aestheticizing youth or the girls. And so a four by three frame is kind of like a perfect frame for that. It's almost like a portrait of that person in a close up. And then if someone does come into that frame, you have to go really close to fit. And so that creates even more intimacy. And of course, this story, which deals a lot with that closeness, you know, if you can come close to another person and what that means and feels like, it was really perfect for that too. Uh, it's, it's my personal belief that you can almost make any aspect ratio work so long as you have the forethought as to how you're going to compose and how you're going to do it. And at every point watching Girl Picture, I never felt like it wasn't entirely consciously thoughtfully framed for four by three. And I have seen other movies which almost treat it as a gimmick and they don't actually really compose for that frame. And I don't think it works, but yours is so successful that I think anyone who immediately has an aversion to four by three will find themselves immediately forgetting about the aspect ratio of it and just concentrating on what's happening inside of that frame. So yes, uh, kudos to you and your cinematographer for coming up with blocking and set pieces and framing that really underscores the intimacy that the small frame can offer you without necessarily always drawing attention to it. And I think that it's a difficult thing to do to have an unusual format work in your favor, but you absolutely did it with this movie, which is great. Thank you. 
Thank you. You know, I hear that just four by three to me is like my youth and watching films on TV. And so when I went to film school, where I started like in 99, then everybody just, you know, the wider, the better. That was kind of the thing. And, you know, it was the time of early digital cameras and you, you were always adding black bars and really fighting for the more cinematic thought. But of course, yeah, like you said, it, it's kind of coming back. And, you know, that was one of the things that we told the people who we had to get approval from, meaning, for example, a distributor or uh, the TV channel that was attached also, that it's it's kind of in a way modern, you know, it, Instagram is square. So kids are used to this too. <laughs> well, uh, I'm glad that you didn't go completely square. I'm glad you didn't go vertical <laughs> video. I'm glad that you, you know, and I think the four <laughs> by three time. is... Yeah, and yeah, I say that now, but just just wait. Uh, anyway, I, I I'm glad that it feels very appropriate to the story. And I just watched another show that another movie that was all done in vertical format, and it's very tedious. Actually, it's very tedious to watch it on a big screen in a proper viewing environment, and then to see someone who's basically removed seventy uh, percent of the visible viewing area. So no, I'm going to say that I'm going to be a purist and I'm going to hold out, and that I don't think that vertical video should make it way its way into feature film. So, but you know, <laughs> okay. So if there is a official site or some sort of social media for the movie, we will add them to our website over at camnoir.com where you can go and click on the links to find out more about uh, the latest with girl picture. And I want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. It was very nice talking to you. I'm joined now by Yarmo Kidru. Well, that's my, I think my best effort for your, your last name. I hope that I got it right. You're the cinematographer of the new movie, uh, Girl Picture. Uh, welcome to the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks for having me. So cool to be here. Uh, Yarmo, I, I don't think that I'm really giving anything away, but during my conversation, which I had just a little bit earlier with your director, Ali called you insane. And... Uh, <laughs> And she called you insane in the most loving and wonderful way. And I want to I want to talk about that actually right now, just to, to get it get it going, because it sounds like your you were the the creative inspiration or the suggestion to make this movie framed in four by three. And I, I'm not going to ruin the story. So when you listen to it, you can you can enjoy hearing her call you insane. But okay. um, uh, tell me tell me about the creative inspiration of where taking this movie like it's very uncommon these days. There are a few ex exceptions, of course, that are yeah. they're going to the older format of 4x3. Where did 4x3 come from in your mind? Where did that inspiration come from? Yeah, that was um, fairly early on in the process. We've had some uh, first meetings with Ali uh, talking about the script. And one day we also had this kind of meeting with uh, the screenwriters who shared the background. And uh, one of the writers, uh, Daniela Hapulinen, uh, she said that uh, at this uh, period of time, uh, you have certain restrictions. Your surroundings, your, your world is kind of limited by your parents and uh, your, your school uh, routines and, and, and whatever, you are still kind of in this kind of liminal space. And somewhere in there, I just had this kind of early impulse of what if this is four by three? And I eventually gathered like nine page uh, PDF of references and, and samples. And I presented it uh, first to Ali, who politely listened to me rambling nervously, that's hoping that she likes it. And in the end, she just nodded that, okay, Armo, that sounds cool. Let's, let's do it. Basically, <laughs> that was it. And then, and from that moment on, like the production and the distributor and everybody was immediately on board. And uh, yeah, it was kind of smooth sailing afterwards. 
Talk a little bit about the lensing for this. I, I know that you chose the Zine lenses, actually, and I think that they're very, very good lenses, and I don't think they often get their due. I know that the uh, the ASC actually has four sets of them for member use that they can take out to use whenever. It's like it's right. a, you know, they're, they're very capable, lightweight, small lenses. And I'm curious about uh, maybe your testing process or how you how you came to decide on what is, uh, you know, a, a less common choice these days. Yeah, well, I did go through a very thorough testing process and I guess I always, I'm, I'm a bit of a stickler for lenses and I want to make, find ways to break the clinical digital image with some more organic, a bit more retro uh, style maybe. And that was my first approach. Uh, I had some lenses that weren't uh, available from our rental company, but they were uh, subprints available. And I was kind of seeing some, some samples of those and I was really interested in those. But uh, like logistically and uh, schedule-wise, they, they weren't available. So I kind of kept bugging the, the rental place that like, what, have you got anything interesting under the counter? What, what do you have? What, to, what do you have? And um, early on, I kind of had my eye on the zine lenses. I haven't used them before. But they had many characteristics that work for us and also that they are very light they're very handheld friendly and also they have kind of fairly modern look but they are not lifeless they are not too evenly engineered so there's still some kind of roundness and presence of um, of the characters and kind of three-dimensionality that i really like so that's that's how i ended up using those those lenses I, I agree. I think that a lot of the stuff that you just described is is what makes them very desirable for people. It's certainly people that, that are conscious. I think that because they have a, a lower price point, there are people who discount them and they really shouldn't because that's not fair to those lenses. Those lenses really can make some startlingly good images as proven by girl picture. Uh, tell me a little bit about your uh, collaboration with Ali. I mean, I, I know that uh, you guys made a wonderful picture together and that there's always a period of time where you get to get to know each other and then you figure out your working styles. It's so talk a little bit about your collaboration. It was really great working with Ali for for first thing. And uh, we already had one short film and uh, part of a TV series, part of a season of a TV series behind us. So we felt good going into this. And what I like about Ali is, like myself, we like to prep. We really like to delve into the, to the world, to the story, and really turn every stone around. Yeah, um, most of the work that we did was short list. And uh, we did uh, floor plans. Uh, we did blocking as much as we could already beforehand so that we can get gotten some sense of possible movement of the actors and kind of getting the sense of how we move in space, how we inhabit space with the, with the characters. Uh, we didn't do storyboards that much because we wanted to kind of leave something to be found in the, in the shooting days. But I think this was possible only after this proper prep that we already had the visual language, some key composition techniques and the vocabulary of the, of the film was already set. So we always knew on which kind of a point of view to lean on. So we're having this conversation now after Sundance and you guys won an award. I mean, that, that, that's, that's got to feel great. Congratulations for, for shooting now an award-winning Sundance movie. What's your reaction to uh, the reaction to Girl Picture? Well, it was quite crazy and overwhelming. Like, I, I think we were all feeling like on the top of the world and kind of winners already when we were uh, accepted into this great uh, festival. And um, I didn't dare to expect such a emotional response. Them. And just reading those comments and I sent them all over to Ali also like, like, Luis, can you see what's happening? And we were all like, well. I rest my case. <laughs> we kind of did it. <laughs> we kind of reached uh, what we wanted. So it was great. 
So Yarmo, I think that's a really great place to leave it. If people want to find you or, or reach out to you online, do you exist on social media or anything like that? Can, can people find you on the interwebs? Yeah, I think I'm kind of all over the place. Um, I don't have a web page, though. I think closest thing is uh, my Facebook page, uh, Cinematographer Yarmo Kiuru. I'm also in Instagram, in Twitter, with the handle Yarmo Kiuru. And um, also in Letterboxd, actually. So you can, you can find me there, too. Well, terrific. We will go ahead and put all of your social connections and handles and stuff inside the show notes uh, over at camnoir.com. Uh, Yarmo, thank you so much for coming on the Cinematography Podcast. Thanks. Thanks. Uh, very cool to be here. Thanks again. And uh, keep up the good work. I'll be listening to you every time. So, And I really love the relationship that you and Ben have. So it's a really nice banter. So thanks for that, too. Well, that, that's very kind. Thank, <laughs> thank you very much. I, I really appreciate that. Yeah. that that's wonderful. All right, so that was Ali Hapsolo and Yarmo Kiru. And thanks so much for being on the show. I know we recorded that interview a while ago, but it took a while for your movie to come out. And I'm really glad that uh, now, you know, everyone is uh, has the ability to be able to see that. And I know it's going to be coming to streaming, I think, in November. So if for some reason you don't catch it in the theater, it's going to be out streaming uh, not too distant future. I think that there might even be a VOD, although I'll have to have Alana verify that. And if there is, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. I just haven't seen if there's a, a VOD available yet. Awesome. Yeah, yeah. Can't wait to see it. And now, short ends. Cool. So, Ben, it is short ends. What is your uh, short end this week? Uh, maybe not the most creative short end. Uh, it's not an obscure piece of ephemera, but it is pretty awesome. And for people who haven't seen it yet, please, please check out Prey, which is streaming on Hulu, a choice I find shockingly weird because this movie should have played in theaters. Uh, it's directed by Dan Trachenberg and shot by cinematographer Jeff Cutter, who does just an amazing, amazing job. And this is a sequel to Predator, the oh, yeah. Arnold Schwarzenegger, the classic. I mean, like certainly in the top five Schwarzenegger movies ever made, but just such a good movie. And they have made like four or five sequels to this movie since then. And some of them have made money and some of them haven't made as much money. But none of them, in my opinion, have nailed what made Predator work exactly the way this movie does. And it does it by going back in time and telling it, I believe it's a Comanche tribe and the lead actor, Amber Midthunder. Vast chunks of this movie are just her and her dog versus this versus a predator. For for those of you who've never seen a predator movie, it's his big alien that comes from another planet. I'm guessing it's like uh how in America we have rich dentists who go over to Africa to shoot a zebra or something like that. I imagine it's the alien equivalent of that. They they come over here and they come to Earth and then they hunt humans for sport and they have armor that makes them invisible blah 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 and this movie just kind of strips it down to its essential parts what made the original movie good and also as as my frequent collaborator bob DeRosa pointed out it's just a good coming of age story like on its own it's like a a, a very harrowing awesome coming of age story about a, a young native american but also there's a fucking predator and it, it's so good and i only have one and it's a very mild complaint about the movie and this is non-spoilery but everything is very naturalistic and feels very realistic and shot in real locations and for reasons that would be obvious to anyone uh they have a lot of animals like there's a scene with a bear that's in the trailer 
and it's a very CGI bear. Mm. But the dog, which is like her companion, is a real dog. So it's weird to have like a very like it in your your eye catches it like real dog. Excellent. Amazing. State of the art CGI bear. But I don't buy it. And you kind of have to just kind of let that go. Uh, The action scenes are phenomenal. The look of it is gorgeous. And really, if you have Hulu, there's no reason not to check it out. I feel like the buzz on the movie has been so positive that they could do a theatrical run with it at this point, And people would go see it in the theater just to see it again. And I also have to say something, and uh, maybe I'm stepping into it a little bit here. But like sometimes white dudes talk amongst other white dudes about like how annoyed they are about diversity stuff. Uh And I feel like not that there's a right and a wrong way to do it, but I feel like this is a movie that no one's going to complain about the fact that the lead is a Native American woman. No one's going to be like, oh, you know, should have been a white dude. Nobody cares. What it's doing is it's telling a story that brings us into a world without uh, exoticizing it, without infantilizing it without being like i feel i'm assuming and maybe i'm wrong that they're very true to the culture that they're trying to portray and i feel like that the people who resist uh, the push for diversity are still going to love this movie and i'm not saying we have to accommodate those assholes i'm just saying <laughs> like i feel like what it ends up being like you look at this and you go amber midthunder this should put her on the map you know in the way that wonder woman put gal gadot on the map and the fact that they didn't do a theatrical with it to me is the only thing that makes me go like, oh, it might it might be a little bit harder. But again, I, I have yet to talk to anyone who, who's seen this movie that didn't really enjoy it. Yeah, I, you know, I, I've definitely been following the uh, some of the buzz about it and I haven't seen it yet, so I can't contribute very much. But uh, mm. but it's interesting. I, 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 I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, looks great. Just everything about it is great. If you like a predator kind of movie, you're going to you're just going to be on the edge of your seat the whole time. It's just so well done. Awesome. Well, uh, well, it makes sense that they called it Prey because, you know, Predator. Brilliant. Prey. Yeah. Uh, do, totally do they bro- completely ignore all the other movies that uh, happened? Well, so this happens before the events of any of the uh, Predator movies. Gotcha. OK. So this is like I don't I don't know exactly what year it is. Oh, uh, actually, on uh, the IMDb page, it says Comanche Nation 300 years ago. Hmm. So there aren't white people in it, except for there's some like fur traders that uh, get involved at, at a certain point and are done really well. I mean, like, it's just such a well-written script, such a perfect action movie, really. Is the perfect. movie subtitled or or are they speaking English? N- no, they went ahead and had everybody speak English. I heard that they might be releasing a Comanche version of it. Oh, wow. But I imagine that would mean that they would have to dub it into Comanche because the actors are speaking English. And Amber Midthunder has been in tons of movies. Mm. Uh, but I, I have heard that they were talking about releasing a Comanche version of it, which would be interesting. But I feel like that's not a complaint. You know, like maybe if it were me, I might have gone with let's do it in it's in the language that the people in the movie would have spoken and subtitle it. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like we're talking about an action movie and you want a lot of people to watch your action movie and subtitles for better or for worse do alienate some people. So, you yeah. know. It's a small concession to make. Yeah. And very cleverly, when the white trappers show up in the movie, they're French. So it doesn't really break (laughs) the spell of the language. All right. So definitely check it out. Well, okay. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Very fun. You should watch it on your uh, in your screening room and and invite me. Uh, That 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 may very well happen then. Cool. So, Ilya, what is your pet obsession of the week? 
I've mentioned it on the show before, and I'm going back. I'm sliding. I'm backsliding here. Uh, I, I haven't done tech in a little while. I'm going to talk about something tech, just because it's now actually shipping, which is pretty amazing. Which is the Tokina 180 millimeter Vista lens, and I know mm. it's hard. Uh, it's a little bit of an abstract concept out there to uh, get excited about one single telephoto cinema lens out there, but I just kind of want to put it in, in perspective a little bit. Uh, the lens is big. It's heavy. It's probably about nine pounds. It's the biggest, heaviest lens in the Tokina Vista set. It's available in a bunch of lens mounts, but it almost doesn't matter. Anyone who's going to buy it is going to buy it in PL, and it's not cheap. It's 18 grand. It's an 18 grand lens, but that being said... It is probably now my favorite 180 millimeter lens of all time. And really? At, yes. And I, I, it's hard for me to say that because I really, really like the, oh, it became a Dulce Prime, but the original 180 millimeter T2 lens out there, F2 lens out there, which was, a, which is a Leica, a Leica Summicron R. It's an incredible, incredible lens. And the look and the bokeh and the style of that lens is so amazing the Tokina is even better. It's, it is, it's an even better lens. And if you are just kind of like out there in the world and you want to know like what the competition is, what, what's so amazing about this lens? Uh, well, quite often when you get to this sort of focal length, uh, the lenses don't cover full frame. Quite often they're slow. Neither of those are true with, I shouldn't say with, with cinema lenses. They're very expensive if they do cover full frame and they have this sort of speed. And there are a couple out there. There's a Lights, also the makers of the, the Leica Summicron R's. They have a Lights Prime, which is a $45,000 lens. And then of course, Cook makes a beautiful 180 millimeter T2, which is $32,000. But it's almost half the price of the Cook, and it is smaller and lighter than both the the lights and the Cook. Uh, it is bigger than the original Summicron, but this new Tokina 180 millimeter lens. Um, I know a lot of people are going to buy Vista Primes. They're not going to buy this lens because really at 18 grand, you're talking about the price of like you know more than two other focal lengths shoved together here. It's really expensive. Mm. It's very sort of like esoteric. It's like individuals. There are some individuals out there who will buy it and and they're professionals and they're going to use this equipment to make money. They're going to use it for income. But rental houses, I think more than anyone else is is going to buy it. And there's now, you know, there's an order. Of course, you can get it through Hot Ride Cameras. Hot Ride Cameras is probably the number one Vista dealer in in the country. They're amazing, amazing lenses. And I think the only way to really appreciate it is actually to see it. And so if if anyone does want to see it and they want to have a demo over at Hot Ride Cameras, uh, please reach out to us. We can probably set that up and make that happen at 18 grand. People who are buying this sort of stuff, they know what they're getting into. They know that they are. Yeah, it's a heavy investment, but um, at the same time, priced to rent. It's priced like to rent. Pr- yeah. But, pr- but yeah. at the same time, if you're the one who is doing the renting, if you're renting it to the production and you can get a, a good a good rate on this, the fast, long lenses like this, the fast, long primes, they have a look and a quality that just isn't the same with, with other focal lengths. And there's so few of them out there that even can do this. It's very much worth taking a look, especially if you um, are someone who's invested in, in Vista Primes. And you look, I think that the people who are, are going down the light cine primes, they're expecting to spend $45,000 on a lens. The, the, the Cook S7 crowd, they're expecting to spend $32,000 on a lens. The Tokina crowd are not. The Tokina, a lot of people got in, they were like $4,500 lens, $5,000 lens, maybe 7,500 a lens for the, the extra focal lengths, but to mm-hmm. drop $18,000 to get 
into this, that's a it's a pretty big ask for people out there. So I think it's going to maintain this sort of like mythical status for a lot of people out there. There's not going to be that many people who have it, but I think that people are going to want to have it on their job just because once you start to work with it, it really has a, a wonderful compression, has wonderful qualities, really excellent sharpness. And those Tokina lenses, I think it's, it's not such a, a big secret that there are companies out there who are buying them and they're changing the the cosmetics of them and putting their name on it and saying hey this is our own original product so if oh, you start, really? if, oh yeah that that this the sort of thing happens uh it happens in the industry it happens with still lenses people will buy a still lens and there's a couple of very famous companies out there who uh were buying very very cheap 300 dollars like samyang lenses rehousing them rather shabbily and then trying to mark up the price really really high so uh that's not typically what happens on exotic high-end lenses when companies do this they which they say oh we've we've modified this or we've made it classic or we've done these these things but there's a couple companies that have I, I know one in particular that's tried to pass off Tokina lenses as their own original optics, and I don't know how they think about that, but I'll say that Tokina already was one of the largest OEM manufacturers out there, so not necessarily on, on cinema side, but certainly on the still side. So like if a major company said, oh, we want a short zoom or we want this, they could call up Tokina and they could actually do all the work for them, and then mm. at, at the end of the day, they would install their own software, this, that, or the other, and uh, Tokina would have essentially outsourced a lens to to another company. So yes, this sort of thing happens and people who are in the industry, particularly technicians who take lenses apart, people know which lenses this happens with. And it, it just so happens that Tokina is a popular lens out there for some people to try to disguise. And uh, when you start to see 180 T2 lenses, there's so few people out there who, who can even make such a lens. Uh, it's mm. it's going to be, I think, a little bit of a giveaway for to some for sure. But anyway, the lens is beautiful. It's expensive and exotic, but uh, if you are a Vista shooter and, and great shows like Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso shot on the, on the Vistas and uh, other other movies and stuff too. But like if you like the way Ted Lasso look, that that whole series is is Tokina Vistas. They're they're great great lenses, and uh, you know because they have sort of a less expensive initial buy-in. I think that some people overlook them, but they shouldn't because they're some of the best lenses in the world. That's awesome. Yeah. So anyway, there you go. Sorry for the long-winded rambling praise for a 180 millimeter lens. I, I know that there's a review uh, online of it too, which I think is kind of funny when people review, you know, single focal lengths like that. But it's not a it's not a bad review. It's it's a good review and it's uh, has a little bit of uh, footage so people can take a look at it. There's just something about the 180. The 180, uh, like people talk about the 40. 40 is a beautiful focal length. 180 is an amazing focal length, especially when you've got speed like that. It's it's really great. Anyway. So I'd love to see that. that that's <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You'll have to come by the shop and we'll, we'll play around. I'll, I'll show you some things. It'll be good. Hell yeah. All I haven't right. been to your shop in a, in a long time. Actually. I, I, not since the pandemic, I don't think. So we'll have to change no, that. We, we've been there a couple of oh, times. Oh, yes, it's true. I guess we did. Okay. So Ben, where can people find you? They want to talk some more to Ben Rock. How, do, how does someone get a hold of you? God damn it. Go to benrock.com. Holy crap. Still still feels great to say it. I know it's been a few months, but man, oh man, I own benrock.com. And you can find all my social media stuff. You can check out my reel. I kind of need to overhaul the website itself, but you can see my reel and uh, find my LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, all that stuff. And uh, feel free to reach out and say hi, as many of you have. So I, I always appreciate talking to people who listen to the show because it's a labor of love for, uh, for both of us. That's true. Uh, Ilya, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me over at Hot Rod Cameras and uh, also uh, lately on LinkedIn. I've had a lot of LinkedIn requests lately. So if uh, if you are a LinkedIn person, which 
I think it's kind of interesting because a lot of people in the industry are not LinkedIn people, but people have been contacting us about. Uh, I'm surprised. Yeah. I'm surprised at how many people I do end up meeting on uh, on LinkedIn. Well, uh, you know, we build studios. Studios is one of the the major things that we do. We we outfit uh, major sound stages and do stuff for all kinds of different studio productions uh, around the country. And uh, someone just reached out to me uh, from LinkedIn looking to build a studio. So that that's always cool. Sweet. Yeah. Ben, let's thank some people. Who should we uh, thank? Uh, obviously, Alana Cody. She's been uh, kicking some serious ass, and we have some amazing interviews coming up very, very soon. So really, I, I can't of think of any. <laughs> no, no, of course, yes, no, they're really amazing. So. Yeah, and I, honestly, I'm still kind of uh, reeling from uh, Larkin Seipel. What a what a that what was so amazing. much fun. That really was. It was so much fun. What a, what a great guy. What a genius on the work that he does. It was so exciting to have him on the show. But we have uh, some, some other people who are coming up who uh, I think our audience will really love. Uh, let's also thank Kay's Alatracci, who might be one of our upcoming interviews. <laughs> spoiler, spoiler. Kay's <laughs> um, Alatracci, who composed every scrap of music that you've heard on the show. And uh, I was disgusted to learn in our interview with Kays that literally in the eight years that we've been doing this podcast, nobody has emailed him about doing a score for any of their projects. For God's sakes. You know, he did not set out and make this wonderful music for us with the intention that people are going to hear it and be like, damn, I want the guy who made that podcast music to, to score my thing. He, he was under no illusions. But but Kays is an amazing, amazing composer, and you can find him at musicbykays.com and uh, check out some of the movie scores and stuff that he did. And for, for God's sake, somebody just reach out and just say, hey, I'm interested in talking to you about scoring my movie. He's great. You know, uh, he should be very flattered. I know we've been quite influential to some other podcasts out there, and uh, they have music which sounds a little bit like Case's original music. So, oh, that's so. interesting. I didn't, I didn't realize that. Yeah. And then, uh, lastly, but never leastly, we should thank Ben Katz, our editor. Holy crap! Ben Katz, week to week, keeping us from sounding like idiots, doing an amazing job with the editing. Whenever I'm talking to somebody before we even get into the interview, I always say we have this brilliant editor named Ben Katz, and his entire mission in life uh, when he's editing one of these is to make everyone sound smart. Yes, and he does a really good job of cutting out all of your internet freezings and strange gaps, which, uh, you know, I don't know if you remember the movie Rango, but one of the characters in Rango is, a, is like a, a mouse named Beans who has like these sort of like rodent seizures type of things. I don't know if you remember this at all, but uh, I don't remember yeah, Rango okay, at all. Well, I, I, saw, I saw it in the theater. Don't remember a thing about it. Well, sometimes doing these podcasts with you is a little bit like uh, Beans and Rango. So R- Rango's a classic. If you, you have an opportunity to rewatch it, Ben, I think you'll really appreciate it. Mm. Okay. So, so th- thanks, Ben Katz, and also Rango somehow. <laughs> All right. So, Ben, I think that's it. All that's left to say is uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening.